Welcome to The Long Game with LZ and Leach from the Recount of ACAST, where every week we talk about the biggest stories in sports and how they impact culture, politics, business, and the Super Bowl. I'm LZ Granderson. He's Will Leach. That's right, LZ, you Super Bowl champion that you are. We have a very full slate today, starting with all of that. But first, I want to congratulate you, LZ, not only because your beloved St. Louis, I'm sorry, Los Angeles Rams won the Super Bowl on (laughs) Sunday, but also because much to my dismay, Stan Kroenke, no, not that dismay, you captured our first ever fantasy playoff draft championship, albeit with a last minute upset victory that was based on suspect officiating. Okay, that's not true. I just don't want to give up the title. But still, the coveted crown is yours to wear for the next year. So after I eat a healthy plate of crow, because it's really it's a very healthy dish, we'll break down the game and talk about our experience being in Los Angeles during Super Bowl week, where the NFL gave us a masterclass in how to evade criticism and avoid responsibility for scandal and controversy as long as the sun is shining and the building costs $5 billion. Speaking of sun is shiny, did you know the sun is really bright when you're on cloud nine? <laughs> it's like right in my face. You're closer to the sun. You're floating <laughs> through the sky. Ah, uh, yes. After that, we're going to discuss the just-concluded NBA trade deadline in the fascinating Eastern Conference and whether or not James Harden slash Ben Simmons trade has reset the balance of power in the East. Don't bet on it. Will, have the Brooklyn Nets gone from dumpster fire to championship favorite? Can the 76ers win it all with James Harden? Is Milwaukee still the team to beat? There's a lot to figure out there. Also, Tibbs is turning these Knicks around. Oh, no. He's, oh, my God. Oh, he's Knicks. bringing up the Knicks again, man. What this is a story about doing? basketball. Oh, my gosh. They're the worst. And we'll dig into the latest developments, such as they are, in the ongoing labor battle between Major League Baseball's owners and players, which is now the second longest work stoppage in baseball history. LZ, after Commissioner Rob Manfred's press conference on Thursday and the players' negative response to the owners' revised economic offer on Saturday, I'm getting more pessimistic than ever that the 2022 season is going to start on time. Maybe instead of putting like in racism on the field, they can put in work stoppage on the field. Whatever it takes. (laughs) I think that would be about as successful as their end racism slogan. Exactly. Then we'll wrap up the show with our This Week in Sports History segment, this time featuring Jeremy Lin and the 10-year, yes, 10-year anniversary of Lin's sanity. And if that's not enough, we'll also answer questions from you, our loyal audience. All right, LZ, let's get right to it with our first big story. First place among many, many contenders for the greatest day of LZ Granderson's life. You know how much I respect you and you know how smart I think you are. But I am I am totally going to win this. <laughs> like, I feel very, very confident with how this draft is going. So for what it's worth, make sure you all follow along to see not just the final score, but just how much I beat LZ by. I'm never confident about anything, and I am so confident I'm winning this. That was the sound of me. The forever supremely confident Will Leach, declaring just about a month ago that I would win the long game's first ever fantasy playoff draft. To be fair, I almost did. It came down to the Super Bowl and my pick, the Cincinnati Bengals, were leading LZ's pick, the Los Angeles Rams, with just more than a minute left in the freaking game until disaster struck. Regardless of my disappointment, LZ, I will not, unlike a certain former pseudo-human, question the validity of these results, even though Logan Wilson did not hold Cooper Cup. I concede the title to you, but I'm also putting you on notice right now that I will win it next year so they can kick this clip and run it before I lose next year. Anyway, LZ, besides the fun of our little draft, there's plenty to discuss. A compelling game that became the ultimate coronation for three stars, Aaron Donald, Matthew Stafford, and Cooper Cup. And an amazing week overall that saw both Los Angeles establish itself as the epicenter of the NFL and the league stiff-arming any of us, and definitely it was us, who thought it would ever yield to criticism, scandal, or controversy. It was so great, first off, LZ, just being out in Los Angeles with you. I miss you already. And I'm so happy that you got to see your Rams win it all in person. Where do you want to start? I had never had a football team that I rooted for win the Super Bowl, right? Like, my entire life had been with the Rams, obviously. When you finally have a team that you root for win the Super Bowl, and you put on that Rams cap 
after that, that Monday after, it's a different vibe, dog. It's a different mood. I was walking more upright. I think I grew three (laughs) inches. I might try and play for the NBA. You know, I might try to be a Laker now because I'm 6'6 because I had this hat on. I'm glad we did the photo shoot before that happened because I already was feeling too short next to you. (laughs) But it's a different vibe. And I get it. I understand why Dallas Cowboys fans are stupid. (laughs) <laughs> because no no seriously this high this the endorphins that runs through your body when you're a Super Bowl champ uh-huh. I already know it's addictive yeah. I'm already trying to figure out how we can repeat and we just won two days ago <laughs> yeah. because I don't want this feeling to ever go away and Cowboys fans have been without this feeling for like 20 some years so I get it why you're crazy I understand it now <laughs> this shit feels great <laughs> what was your takeaway from the week from the game being in Los Angeles other than the fact that again the glory of your team winning the Super Bowl, what was kind of your major takeaways? First and foremost, the global supply chain issues that we've been facing has not stopped us from being able to acquire brown liquor and pot. That's good. Um, yeah, listen, California's economy's got to run, man. Come on. <laughs> I would walk into a CVS or something, and they were just like, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have this. We don't have that. Henny was not one of them. <laughs> there was plenty of brown liquor to be had. So congratulations to Mayor Garcetti and everyone that was involved in the ports to make sure that the city of Los Angeles had plenty of pot and brown liquor, and there was no shortage of either. America's back. Build back better. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the city did a remarkable job. And obviously, just the way the NFL as a whole is setting up its business, it's obvious that it wants Los Angeles to be a huge part going forward of these type of celebrations, whether it's possibly hosting Pro Bowls, if not hosting more Super Bowls. It is clear that the NFL loves them some Los Angeles. And it's not just because of the weather. Believe it or not, from a logistics standpoint, it's really in a good space. Yeah, That location in Inglewood makes it so much easier to get in and out of. Even though the traffic was still terrible, it wasn't like you come in from one direction. And I think that's also one of the reasons why the NFL may have thought that this location and this city would be good to host these huge events. But there's also just a celebrity vibe to LA that you just won't duplicate. Not even in Vegas. Not even in Vegas because... The type of celebrity that participated in the Super Bowl, either with some sort of pre-production ads that were running inside the stadium or going and being in suites themselves. I don't recall Jay Leno just randomly appearing (laughs) in promotions for the Super Bowl. Do you? No. Jay Leno obviously performed in the Super Bowl, but I don't recall seeing her just showing up to random Super Bowls and watching them. I will say in Indianapolis, the cutaways to celebrities were more depressing. (laughs) I would put it that way. (laughs) There were so many celebrities that they misspelled Tobey Maguire's name. It's like, oh my gosh, there's Charlize Theron. Like, Exactly. (laughs) I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right about that. It was star-studded. There was corporate America. It was cross-cultural. Danny Trejo, Jay Leno, as I mentioned earlier, and then obviously the halftime act. Keegan-Michael Key. A country artist did the Star Spangled Banner. She was really good, by the way. And she well, she's amazing. (laughs) That was really good. And then she posted a picture with Prince Harry. And I was like, are you telling me Prince Harry was that so fun? Checking in the suit? Like, it was absolutely ridiculous. So my experience personally was a lot of fun. I had a chance to hang out with Snoop a little bit on Saturday before his iconic performance on Sunday. And obviously just hanging out with you just in and around the city. Mm-hmm. Not quite as impressive, but still, still hopefully fun. You know, you know Will Leach, Snoop. I know. And the New York Post also caught me smoking pot before I went on to the stage that day. So, uh, woo! Thankfully, they didn't, nobody cared enough to run those. <laughs> you dodged a blunt with that one. I did. <laughs> but I just felt the city did a remarkable job of showing why the NFL should have been back in L.A. a long time ago and why I don't think people in the city and in and around California have to fear another departure. Yeah, I thought it was pretty telling, not just at the big press conference that Goodell had on Wednesday. He lit up every single time he talked about Los Angeles. He said, no, this is going to be part of the regular Super Bowl rotation. But even after the game, when he gives the trophy to... Gives a trophy to Stan Kroenke of all the Rams thing. I cannot be happy for that guy, but I will do my best to be happy for the rest of you and the team. When he hands the trophy over, he talks about how this is a Hollywood ending. He actually called SoFi the greatest stadium in the world. You couldn't come up with a better possible way for this to go for Los Angeles. I, I think it was incredibly well put together, very well structured. I do feel like it was integrated well into the city. 
while still not disrupting life for anyone in Los Angeles. When you have the NFL media headquarters there, I mean, literally there's a huge NFL building right next to the stadium. It's the future, right? And it's remarkable Mm -hmm. to think how long we went without the NFL in Los Angeles. That would be 21 years. Now it feels like they're going to be inextricable from one another. It would not surprise me to see them even shift some of their offices from New York to Los Angeles a little bit. It seems to be a better fit for them. It's just remarkable to think that all it took was Stan Kroenke 2015 being like, oh no, I'm just buying some land, even though I have a 30-year contract with St. Louis. No reason. But that's kind of the Los Angeles story, right? Things are kind of ugly and that people can throw some elbows to make things happen. But then you pave away a new freeway to the ocean and everyone's happy. That's ultimately how it turned out. As for the actual game, you spent a lot of this year talking about Stafford and how he's kind of been underappreciated. But we really have not talked about that no-look pass. You knew Stafford was good, but that's an all-timer of a highlight that the broadcast didn't capture. Stafford caught on the run. Cup. Who else? But now that you see it, that feels like that's the play that Stafford's going to be known for for the rest of his career. And with good reason. To throw that throw is insane anyway. But to do it in that exact spot when you're driving to try to win the Super Bowl, I'm glad that clip has been everywhere because I feel like it's papered over some of the things that people didn't like about the ending. Some people didn't like some of the calls. felt a little anticlimactic down the end. That play is the big play of the game that it feels like we kind of missed. That play now feels like it goes down in history, even though we didn't actually see it live on the broadcast. It was the sort of play that we're just used to seeing in Detroit. Matt Stafford's been in the league 12, 13 seasons. I'm going to assume outside of Thanksgiving, a lot of people have not seen the Lions play in the last 12 or 13 <laughs> years and thus have not seen... And then only the first half. <laughs> you know, and, and thus have not seen Matt Stafford. But right. for those of us who are Lions fans or grew up in Detroit, we've actually seen him throw similar passes at longer distances. Matt Stafford has been an incredibly talented quarterback his entire career. He just has not been an insanely talented quarterback in the sense of being on a winning team. You could make the same sort of arguments with Anthony Davis, for instance, right? Anthony Davis had been amazing for New Orleans for a long time, but it wasn't until he was paired with a franchise that was competent enough that you got to see what that would do to a playoff series or what that could do for a playoff run, having that kind of talent. And Matt Stafford quietly had more fourth quarter comebacks and wins than any quarterback since he's been drafted. And I say quietly because his name is not mentioned among the great clutch quarterbacks, but he has been the most clutch quarterback in terms of fourth quarter performances. And I'm really glad that the country got to see that, not just in the Super Bowl, but really this entire run. Remember, he led the fourth quarter drive that got the game-winning field goal against the 49ers. And he led a similar sort of drive that got the game winner against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And that's three consecutive postseason games, one on the road against the GOAT, in which he led these remarkable drives from a distance, (laughs) mind you, from a distance. He didn't get a short field. Yeah, he had Cooper Cup, but he didn't have large windows. (laughs) There were still very tight windows he had to get that ball to him, in large part because everyone knew All the other Rams receivers were shitting their pants in real time, dropping passes, (laughs) not running the right route. It was like, what's going on? And the running game, too. The running game wasn't really working at all. The running game wasn't there. And they really kind of had no choice after OBJ went out with his knee injury but to try to force the ball to Cooper Cup, which meant that tight window for Matt Stafford didn't leave much room for error, which meant that pass he threw, that no-look pass, that wasn't showing off. That was necessity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He had to try to find a way to look off that defender to create that passing window for Cooper Cup. When people talk about whether or not he's a Hall of Famer, and I know Richard Sherman just had a soliloquy, and he put out some really good reasons why Matt Stafford is not a Hall of Famer, I will point to the fact that that motherfucker's been throwing passes like that his entire career. And while he may have stats in an era where a lot of guys have stats, you're seeing how he accumulated those stats. And you're beginning to understand when he accumulated those stats. Those touchdowns that he has, those 325 touchdowns, whatever the number is, a lot of those touchdowns came on game-winning fourth-quarter drives. A lot of those pass yards he's talking about came in crunch time in the fourth quarter. 
he didn't just get a bunch of numbers in games that didn't matter. He also got a bunch of numbers and times that mattered. And you got to factor all of that in. The Lions were behind the line. Yes. <laughs> you got to round up all of that when discussing his yeah. credentials. And he still may not be a Hall of Famer when you do all of that. But if you're going to have the argument, Will, about whether or not he is a Hall of Famer, don't just dismiss his stats as simply him playing in a pass-happy era. I think there was one year he had like maybe eight comebacks yeah. in one season. He accumulated those stats in those moments as well. So I'm glad that he got to do that. And one last thing, and I think this is the sweetest shit of all, he became a champion in front of champions, right? Mookie Betts and Clayton Kershaw in the stands. Magic Johnson and LeBron mm -hmm. is in the stands. Kawhi Leonard is in the stands. Yeah. So he's not only becoming a champion in the city of Los Angeles, but he's becoming a champion in front of champions in Los Angeles. Draymond Green, who's won three rings, was in the stands. Yeah. He pulled off that shit in front of all of them. <laughs> That's respect, dog. Yeah. That's major respect. And he did in front of us, too. A bunch of, all oh, the more pressure. Too. All yeah, the more pressure true. and impressive. How lucky was he? No, I tell you, I'm just saying. Last thing to kind of close out the game itself, there was some debate afterwards about the MVP. Who would you have voted for? Was it, would it have been Donald? Would it have been Cop? Would it have been Stafford? Who, who would you have chosen? That's a great question because... I felt that because of the second interception, Matt Stafford had taken himself out of it. And even though that second interception was not his fault, no, right. <laughs> the receiver slipped. Yeah. And everyone could see the receiver not only slip, but they popped the ball up for the yeah. defender. <laughs> if you're going to slip, just go down flat. Like, right. Just go down flat. He, like he slipped and said, volleyball time. <laughs> I felt once the second interception happened, that was going to make it difficult mm. for Matt to become MVP, even though he played like one for the most part. And obviously in that last drive, his passing, the precision of it was impeccable. But I thought with the sack to end up the game that there was an opportunity for Donald to slip in there and maybe take it from him. When everything was on the line for the Rams, everything. Yes, we know it was Aaron Donald, but we also know... It was Cooper Cup. And who knows? Maybe people had already voted and made up their minds before that sack. Right. And thus, that's the reason why he did not get the MVP. But, I mean, come on. When you had to have yards, when you had to have a first down, when you had to have the touchdown, yeah. it was Cup. Right after he got drilled. Like, right after right he got absolutely after hammered. he got drilled. And we <laughs> certainly couldn't have a discussion about whether or not he should have even been back on the field immediately after that. Yeah. Though I think we all know what I'm going to say. I think in week seven, he's not back on the field. <laughs> week seven, he's maybe not back on. Right. Last minute of the Super Bowl, absolutely not. You're not getting him off of that, right? His head would have had to have been still on the field yeah. in order for him not to be out yeah. to play the next snap. But I was happy with it. It's a perfect way to end our historic season. It brings back the conversation about whether or not he should have gotten more consideration for his regular season MVP, though I'm not mad at Aaron Rodgers. I thought Aaron Rodgers also had a historic season and, and justifiably so was the leader of that team that won the overall number one seed. But having that historic season end with a Super Bowl MVP, I thought was a very good storybook ending. And if there is a Hall of Famer, on that team besides Aaron Donald and Von Miller, certainly Cooper Cup has shoehorned himself into that conversation. Okay, to close out, one last shout out to Joe Burrow, who I think was great and I think is a guy that's going to win a Super Bowl at some point. The connection he has with the city of Cincinnati, he's obviously from the area originally. Mm -hmm. You really hope he gets him one at some point because the one thing that I really got to say about the week in Los Angeles, there were Bengals fans everywhere. They were yeah. everywhere, whatever section of town like you were at. Coaches, like they were, they were, and they were all wearing their bingo stuff. You, they were definitely not trying to blend in to any stretch yeah. of the imagination. And it, I, I think it was louder in there for Bengals fans, which is fine. You've talked about how the Rams are all trying to establish a fan base. I don't think that's something to criticize the Rams or Los Angeles about, other than the fact that they had a good fan base in St. Louis. But we don't talk about that. More to the point that Cincinnati... That's a fan base. They're now 0 for 3 in the Super Bowl. They've been really close in the Super Bowl twice. I hope they get a chance to get one. I think when they do, Burrow's going to be the guy. He may have to go to Miami first before he comes back to win a championship. Oh, Just no. throwing it out there. <laughs> Don't say that. Pingles fans have suffered enough. <laughs> All right, Will. I know it's difficult to leave the NFL, especially hmm. as a loser like you. Hey. But let's move on to our next big topic, the NBA and the very compelling Eastern Conference. Today, Brooklyn started 
to talk about with Philadelphia what a deal would look like and where it lands is James Harden, who will go along with Paul Millsap to Philadelphia for Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, but obviously the key elements here. Brooklyn was ready to move off of James Harden, and it was clear he didn't want to be there anymore. They knew that, and they got enough back in their minds uh, to try to put a team on the floor this year and then beyond that can still compete for a championship, but the blockbuster is done. James Harden is headed to the Philadelphia 76ers, and Ben Simmons is going to be a net. That, my friends, was the sound of ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski breaking the news last week that the Brooklyn Nets were trading their disgruntled superstar, James Harden, to the 76ers for their disgruntled superstar, Ben Simmons, and by far the biggest deal of the year, and one that will reset the fortunes of both teams one way or the other. Well, the storylines that are left after this trade are so freaking compelling. Like Brooklyn, with Kevin Durant out for at least a couple more weeks with a knee injury and Kyrie Irving playing only half their games because he's unvaccinated. Can they resurrect this disappointing season by adding Ben Simmons, who hasn't played all year because he's been dealing with mental health issues? Can Philadelphia thrive with James Harden, who looks out of shape and has been traded twice in the last two years because he's been unhappy. <laughs> Reputations are on the line, Will, and I can't wait to see how it all turns out. Who do you think is the favorite to win the East right now? I think it's probably the Bucks. to be honest. i probably go with the Bucks, though I will say if I'm the Bucks or the Heat, I probably am not doing backflips about the 76 and the Nets potentially both getting better from this trade. I think you can make an argument, at least in the short term. I think the Nets may be better in the long term. With this, I think Harden is older, and we'll see how that turns out. You're right, he's a little out of shape. And I think Harden, this is his last shot, right? Like Harden has now done this twice in the last year. I actually feel like he fits with 76ers. Embiid is having this incredible year. And you can see Harden both taking some pressure off of him and also being able to set him up in a way that I think it worked out pretty well, and certainly in a way that Simmons was not an ideal piece next to him. And on the Nets side, I do feel that Simmons makes a ton of sense for them. The Nets had to pay to do it. If you're a fan of the 2028 Nets, I don't know how it's going to work out for you. But right, right now, I think Simmons over the next few years, as long as he's a perfect fit, he doesn't have to worry about scoring. He can totally drive the lane and not do a layup because Irving will be right there. So, you know, <laughs> there's clearly opportunities there. But asking either one of these teams to figure it out in time for the playoffs, when you've got the Bucks and you've got the Heat, the, I, we shouldn't slip on the Heat here. The Heat are really rolling into shape right now. But right. to me, the Bucks adding a Baca, I think, is more a hedge for Lopez than anything else. But it certainly doesn't hurt what they're trying to do over there. The Bucks showed in the playoffs last year that they were able to take that next step in a way they weren't in the past. I do think the Nets and I do think the 76ers are both better, but the idea that this fixed all of their problems, if there were only some way they could figure out an opportunity <laughs> to get Kyrie Irving on the court all the time, if only there were something that could be done. If only Yo, he, he had a chance. for Djokovic, dog. I was going to have a chance to win the French <laughs> Open in Wimbledon if only there was some sort of way. I think for now, it still feels like the safest bet is the Bucs. But certainly, if I'm the Bucs in the heat, the 76ers are probably still someone you had to deal with. The Nets, the way they were kind of reeling and the way Harden was doing once again the I want to get out of here sort of effort plays. Since that trade is over, I've been surprised how kind of like, oh, whew, I, I didn't realize how much the Harden-Simmons situation was wearing me out. It's just been this yeah. ongoing question all year. Finally, the teams can just get back down to business. I have to say, I feel like Daryl Morey should feel a little vindicated right now. He actually got a lot more than I think a lot of people thought he was going to. So we'll see how it all works out. But I think, no question, this makes the Eastern Conference very riveting, particularly once, once you get to that second round. It's definitely going to be interesting. And a very, very good team is going to lose in the first round. And depending upon which team it is... They're either going to stand pat after this or blow the whole thing up after this, which is interesting because if the Nets lose in the first round, they got to blow it up, right? Like, and, yeah. it, and it's going to be crazy to see which team is willing to take on Kyrie because I'm assuming that if they do blow it up, he's going to be one that leaves, not KD, unless <laughs> yeah. KD gets fat. <laughs> which seems unlike I don't know how he could get that like, he definitely yeah. just, we'll, we'll see, see. Yeah, we'll see. Lemon Pepper Wings got a lot of calories <laughs> in him so we'll see right. if it's Chicago Bulls they won't blow it up right because right. 
they will have a different sort of relationship to that first round loss versus the Nets with the expectations. So it will be interesting to see what happens. I think there are two things at play when it comes to the trade between the two superstars that benefits both coaches, if you will. Number one, for Steve Nash, Ben Simmons reminds me so much of Boris Diaw. Mm. Boris Diaw was a six foot nine, six foot eight kind of do it all player who was positionless and wasn't really known as a great shooter. Now, when he went to Phoenix and under their system, working with Steve Nash, he became more confident of a jump shooter. Not sure if that's going to happen with the Nets. We'll see. But the real reason why I brought it up is because Steve really knows how to use these utility players to the best of their abilities. In other words, even though Boris Diaw wasn't a great shooter for the Phoenix Suns, Steve knew how to put him in positions to be successful, which may not necessarily be Doc Rivers' best trait. Right. Doc Rivers is not particularly good at helping players who are struggling get out of that struggle. But he's really good at helping established players who are confident be utilized to the best of their abilities. And I think with James Harden under Doc Rivers' care now, Doc Rivers knows how to talk to him. He knows how to coach him up. He knows how to get him to shake out of this two-year funk and be that guy that no one could stop in the offensive end as opposed to being what he is now, which is kind of like a dribbler hoping to get bailed out by the refs. I think he'll know how to get in James's head so that James can be more focused and being an attack dog for him and not being this passive whatever the hell he was when he was playing with KD and Kyrie for those 16 games. 16 games. The other thing that I like about the trade for both coaches, per se, is that it gives them an opportunity to reset the entire season. That whatever we were just doing, forget about it. Whatever your frustrations were prior to the trade, forget about it. However you thought you were slighted before this trade, forget about it. We have a chance to have a fresh, brand new start, and we just got either an MVP, if you're 76ers, or perhaps the best young talent in the league, when you think about everything he does on both ends of the floor, if you're the Nets with Ben Simmons. I think it's a trade, as you mentioned, that works out best for both teams. I expect both teams to play better, and I expect all of them to lose to the Bucks. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can see it. I, and... One of the things I like doing with this podcast is to take a step back from it and look at the power dynamics, right? And kind of what led us to this point. We've talked a lot about player empowerment and how it's a very positive development. I'm curious, though, when it comes to Harden, it does feel like this is your last shot to pull this crap again. If he's a superstar player, and he has been, he's been an MVP, he's been this great player, you understand why the 76ers want him. I think there's some goodness in the idea of him having the power to be able to get himself out of the situations. There's been a long issue with the NBA. This is what we've seen over the last 10 years, right? If you're a superstar player, you call the shots. And I think that's ultimately, I would argue, good for basketball. I think at least more fair to basketball. The problem is, is if you don't back it up. And I think we've clearly seen now Harden at two stops not being able to back it up. You talk about Steve Nash. Like, I remember when he got that job, he's like, wow, I'm going to have a Harden and Irving <laughs> and Durant. This is going to be the easiest job in the world. Now it's like, yeah. now, dog, you got to coach for real yeah, now. Yeah, sorry, I have a real thing now. And it only happened 16 games, by the way. So, yeah, it is interesting. And, you know, this harkens back to how much more impressive the LeBron, Wade, and Bosch thing really was. I think when that happened, there was this idea like, hey, they didn't win the title the first year. And it was like, aha, see, they can't do it. But of course, it took them time to figure it out. And then they won and they became this dominant team. And I think it led to this idea that, oh, so it's that easy. Just get your stars together and they'll all work together. It makes me appreciate what they did that much more. It also makes you appreciate what the Warriors were able to do to integrate Durant. And then Durant leaves and it's a lot harder when you're outside that situation. We've discussed the idea of super teams before and how silly phrase that gets overused. But I do think the idea of players forcing themselves into these, what they consider their best situation, often it comes with caveats. If Kyrie Irving gets vaccinated from the get-go, you know, like my children who were not afraid (laughs) of getting vaccinated. He's doing his own research. He's doing his own research. And I indoctrinated my children into this life-saving vaccine. Anyway, Kyrie Irving refused to do the thing that my children did. But if he had, do you think this happens? There was that one game this year against the Bulls. Remember that game they played at Chicago when Irving played and the Bulls Mm -hmm. were like, all right, we're going to get the Nets. We're going to show how good we are. And the Nets just 
smoked them, <laughs> just absolutely right. destroyed them. And I remember that was around the time we were asking, who's your second half favorites? I feel like it's still the Nets because you see what they can do when they have it all together. And I think the thing that messed it up, obviously Harden didn't help things. That's ultimately the reason it ended. But Irving not getting vaccinated really just messed the whole thing up because they never were really ever able to play together. I can see Harden, if Irving's there not all the time, not feeling he has to carry that burden, not getting frustrated. Maybe Harden would have done that anyway. <laughs> He's Harden. We've seen him do it before. But it is funny to think of all of the great when we talk about the super teams or the superstars coming together, 16 freaking games. Is all those three Hall of Famers, clear Hall of Famers, only got 16 games out of it. And as it turns out, they all go to separate teams with another superstar uh, like Embiid. And it may be Milwaukee that wins the whole thing anyway. So <laughs> I think there may be a lesson to be learned from that. I mean, the, the lesson is, and I'm so glad you brought this point up, is that it's easy to put together an all-star team. It's not easy to put together a championship team. Yeah. I would argue this has been a player's league for a long time. I mean, the reason why Pat Riley became the head coach of Showtime is because Magic says this is not going to work. And he got Paul fired. And Pat took over yeah. and became, you know, Pat. Pat, Pat Riley. <laughs> became Adrian Brody, from what I understand, right, right, from, the, exactly. from the upcoming series. And that's back in the 80s. Michael Jordan got Doug Collins pushed out in order for Phil Jackson to become head coach. So this has been a player's league for a long time. This isn't something that's been new. I think the only new part of it is that player movement has been more substantial with mm -hmm. superstars being involved with the movement. We aren't quite used to seeing that. But we are used to seeing superstars flex and get people fired or get mm -hmm. coaches removed or send them on to spend more time with their families or yes. however they want to. Live in a farm upstate. <laughs> right, whatever you want to say, right? <laughs> Isn't that what Jerry Sloan said in regards to <laughs> yeah. Darren Williams pushed him out? Yeah. In terms of the example you pointed to, one of the things that happened that first year with the Heatles in 2011 was that. Yeah, they struggled early on. They got it together. They went to the playoffs. They went to the finals. And then LeBron realized he still needed to work on his game. Yeah. <laughs> Deficits in his game were exposed. And he addressed them, both mentally, and he talks a lot about that, seeing a sports psychologist and working on the mental aspect of the game, but also physically, just becoming more comfortable with his back to the basket and not just being a slasher and a face-up jump shooter. He learned how to play in the post. And since then... He's just been unquestionably the best player in the game up until maybe last season. So the losses, he came away with a different idea of what he needed to do to be a better player. James Harden hadn't done that. No. James Harden has blamed people. He's pointed fingers at coaching or front offices or other players, even his superstar colleagues. Yeah. I mean, imagine not getting along with Chris Paul. <laughs> yeah. Chris <He's>... Paul, <laughs> whose whole career is yeah. built on making sure other players get off and get theirs. Yeah. That's his entire career. Yeah. Yeah. And somehow James Harden couldn't get along with that. Or it's the ref's fault, right? The refs are calling it different now. That's right, another right. one. Ex ex exactly. Yeah. So then you end up with the 76ers. And okay, yeah, Kyrie's in and out of the lineup. Got it. But you got KD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, the fuck? <laughs> like, you got Kevin Durant yeah. as your teammate, who's got two finals MVPs while playing with three other Hall of Famers. <laughs> right. He played with three other Hall of Famers, and KD still found a way to win MVP of the finals twice. And James Harden is telling you he can't play with that. Yeah. Come on, dog. Yeah. Come and... on, man. <laughs> As I said, he better do it now. Like, he better do it now. Because what does James Harden look like if the career keeps going in the direction where he gets a, a little bigger, we'll say? and doesn't make that next step forward. What is he in three or four years? I mean, is he in the league? You know what, where he's tipping towards right now? Uh-oh. He's tipping towards Sean Kempville. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean... That's not what you want. That's not, it's not what you want. I mean, if... No the, offense for to the prime Sean Kemp. I love prime Sean Kemp. <laughs> right. But yes. for, I was going to say, for the youngins who don't know, yeah. Sean Kemp was dope as fuck. Oh, he was the best. He was... He uh, was the... The Rain Man yeah, yeah. was a handful and once he developed that mid-range jumper, and back in the day, if a big man had a mid-range jumper, you were basically unstoppable. Once he developed that mid-range jumper, 
it was a wrap in terms of what you could do to stop him at the power forward position. And then he discovered lemon pepper wings <laughs> and <laughs> cheesy bread. Which are both really good. Which are both really, really good. But they're not good for you in, in large quantities. And he started picking up weight. And while he was still a really skilled big man, he eventually became someone that you couldn't build around. And then he became someone that you couldn't necessarily think would be a contributor to a championship team. Yeah. And I know that sounds ridiculous considering how good Harding has been. But trust when I say the Rain Man was a force, just like <laughs> Harding. Yeah. You can eat yourself out of forcehood. You can <laughs> certainly become complacent and work yourself out of being that dominant of a player if you aren't careful. And so this is James' final stop in terms of being seen, in my opinion, to your point, Will, as someone who's a significant difference maker and that you can rely on to help get you over the hump to win a championship. If he starts complaining or if he gets into it with Doc Rivers or worse yet, if he starts putting a finger at Embiid the way mm -hmm. he put in a finger at Dwight Howard when he had Dwight Howard, who was still relatively good in Houston, then I'm looking at James Harden and I'm going... Dog, Dwight Howard led a team to the finals. Have you? Right, right, <laughs> right. Well, definitely my least favorite Star Wars prequel was Eating Your Way Out of Forcehood. <laughs> that was the worst <laughs> one. I hated uh, that yeah. one. Why they don't did talk George about Lucas, that one often, Will. I know. Why did George Lucas even, <laughs> come on, nobody cares about that, man. Okay, LZ, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to talk about a sport that doesn't play games, apparently. Stick with us. <laughs> We'll discuss the sad state of Major League Baseball next. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. All right, LZ, we're back. I, I see missing games as a disastrous outcome for the for this industry, and we're committed to making an agreement in an effort to avoid that. That was Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred in a press conference on Thursday talking about the seemingly broken labor negotiations between the players and the owners. After their collective bargaining agreement expired in early December, the owners locked out the players, and the two sides have been at an impasse since, unable to even come close to terms on a host of economic issues. The players have seen their average salary drop by more than 4% since 2019, and they're looking to make changes to the financial structure of the sport to decrease what they say are built-in drags on the owner's spending. Players want to see increases in their minimum salary levels, they want to see a significant raise in the amounts teams can spend before the luxury tax kicks in, and they want to reduce the incentives for teams to tank for high draft picks. The problem is any move the MLB has made in the player's direction has been very tiny and have come with countermeasures that will continue to hold back that salary growth. Spring training should be starting right now. If the owners and players can't make a deal within the next two weeks, it's extremely difficult to see how the season will begin at the end of March, which means we may lose games. After Manfred's press conference, for the first time, I have to confess, I'm starting to think the owners are very willing to lose those games to pressure the players into caving to their will. This is already the second longest work stoppage in Major League Baseball history. It's very depressing, LZ. How do you think this is going to play out? 
Well, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on this. First of all, the Rams are Super Bowl champions. Important thought. Didn't want people to forget. So I don't want you to forget that. All right. I spent some time talking with an all-star pitcher who's under 30, mm-hmm. who was at an industry party over the week in L.A., and I was asking questions about the work stoppage in between sips of that henny. Mm-hmm, of course. Which was not hard to find. <laughs> Which is very important. <laughs> and I may not have this quote correct, okay. but he loosely said, we're going to fuck this up. When I asked him <laughs> if they were going to be able to not yeah. miss any games. Yeah. And I thought it's interesting that he said we. Okay. Because that would mean that he also sees some fault with the players. Now, again, we were drinking that brown liquor, so I don't know if he was completely clear of thought, but when I was asking him questions, Will, about the work stoppage, he used the word we, which means that maybe there are some players who feel like the union's asking maybe a little too much, and that maybe there is some justification for the ownership to rebuff some of their requests. Now, we all know in the art of negotiations, you're supposed to ask for too much because the ideal is to eventually settle in on close to what you were really hoping to get in the first place. So I don't know if asking too much is a part of a negotiation tactic. I also don't know what asking too much means, like which aspect of the demands are out of bounds. It wasn't very clear in my conversation with this pitcher, and he didn't offer up any kind of perspective. I think he really just wants to play. And I think the players really just want to play. And the business of baseball, as I've said a thousand and one times, is getting in the way of the pleasure of baseball. Now... When it comes to the salary conversation, because the owners aren't willing to open up the books and have a real conversation mm-hmm. about compensation, I think that distrust is just going to be an element of this debate, and this negotiation process forever. Because the players know how shitty they were treated as minor league players. Well, the top tier level was living off the hog, right? And right. living fantastic. When you treat minor league players like crap like that, they develop a relationship with the owners that isn't necessarily trustworthy. And they carry that with them. And it's going to be difficult, in my opinion, to get major league players to forget what they endured as minor league players, eating bad sandwiches and stuff like that, when they knew good and well that it didn't have to be that way. That baseball could have spent more money so that minor league players could have better accommodations. But because they didn't, players know that they were squeezing every last dime out of this industry, and they don't want that to happen to them on the major league level. And so they want to dig in their heels. And not sharing the books just sows more distrust between the two parties. I'm sure we're going to miss games, Will. But you know what I'm also sure of? With 100,000 games in a regular season, people aren't going to necessarily care if it's just April. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I think this is what the owners are counting on. Two things. They're counting on one, players like the one that you talked to really wanting to play. They're going to start losing game checks, right? Because one of the things I was hoping that might push the owners along inside of this a little bit is that players aren't paid during spring training. It's remarkable to me to see teams, by the way, still trying to sell tickets for spring training games in a week and a half. (laughs) A little consumer alert, okay? Don't buy tickets to spring training games at the end of February. They're just going to get refunded. Those games are not happening. And I was actually hoping a little bit that that would push the owners a little because that's free money. Spring training has become a much bigger moneymaker than it used to be. You just watch people play on backfields and the stadiums would be half full. Now there's a big business for the owners and they're going to lose that spring training without actually having to pay any salary. So I think that was something I would hope would push them. The fear is if they're willing to lose spring training games, what's April? Don't got to pay the players in April. And the fear among some is they actually learned a lesson from 2020. You can argue whether they lost money or they made less money than they usually make. But certainly 2020 taught them a great lesson, right? Which was the real money's in the playoffs. That's what sports is right now, right? All the money is from television. If you can get expanded playoffs, I'll put it this way. It hurts the players more for there not to be regular season games than it hurts the owners. And so I think that's become part of their negotiating ploy in this. The frustrating thing about this is the two sides are not that far. There have been major issues throughout baseball history, whether it was the pension in the 1970s or the salary cap in 1994 or salary caps really throughout all of baseball history where there were fundamental fights 
Baseball does not have a salary cap because they had a huge strike in 1994 and the players did not allow that to happen. There was clear big issues they were fighting about. Here, they have fundamental understandings of how these things are going to work out. They're just unable to get to the middle. They keep inching here and inching here and inching here and inching here and then going no closer because everyone's posturing. I think the owners are posturing a lot more because frankly, they're a better negotiating position. So they're able to weigh it out in a way that it makes it more likely the owners are going to win. But fundamentally, I think like you, I'm going to be on the side of the players in, in this situation. If you've read Lords of the Realm, I encourage everyone to read Lords of the Realm because it gives you an idea of what's going on and what's generally been going on throughout baseball history. I want the players to get what they deserve. You know what I want more though, LZ? I want baseball to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I feel a little guilty saying that because I'm a pro-union family. My father was in a union. I went to college because of a union. I feel like owners are not in the right on this. However, I'm sorry. I hope this is an okay thing to say, but <laughs> I really want there to be baseball and I really want it to start on time. But to what your all-star friend said, they're going to blow this up. They're in serious, serious danger. And I know there's always this idea that, oh, fans will come back. Fans will come back. They'll always come back. I remember 94. You remember 94. That took a while. We and didn't rush back for that. They didn't rush back. And also, boy, what was around the time where the NFL clearly, firmly, and for 100% established itself as the obvious national pastime of this country? It was clearly during that time when baseball was weak and the NFL was ascendant. And, and then, oh, by the way... We were at the very beginning of the Michael Jordan of course, three-peat. Of course. <laughs> Baseball lost a ton then from a position that is considerably stronger than the sport finds itself in right now. Now, financially, sport's doing great. That's why this fight's happening, because <laughs> the sport's doing great. And I think owners are, have decided we are willing to lose some games at the beginning of the year because we think we're in the stronger position and we think eventually they're cave. I'm not entirely sure that they're right, that the players are going to do that. Players were very galvanized by 2020. They were very frustrated by that. Maybe they didn't come to an agreement for that year. So Manfred actually had to impose the rules. I think owners have underestimated how firm the players are going to be in their beliefs, which is really frustrating because again, they're not that far apart, but everyone's just posturing and sitting there. And whatever money that you think think you'll be able to save by waiting the players out. Let's think past our nose a little bit and think about, yeah, but what happens if you miss half the season and your fans are like, you know what? Fuck off, all of you. Like, fuck off. <laughs> like, honestly, fuck off. My son listens to this podcast and he always jokes, LZ curses a little bit more than you do. So I'm trying to catch up, William. And, uh, and, I'm, just, and I'm just saying. It's because I have a bad mouth. It's not because I need to curse. I get really dialed up about this because, listen, I understand that this is a business and this is a negotiation between a union and management. And fans don't necessarily have a place in that table the same way that Chevrolet consumers don't sit in on fights between the union and management. Fans, even if they're fundamentally on the side of the players, they just want baseball to happen. And the stuff that you're going to lose by putting people through this again, there's no way you're making that up in the back end. And I think right. that's what's really, really frustrating. They've still got a chance not to lose games, but they are running out of time. And it's really frustrating. There are still some teams out there that needs to finish putting his roster together. Oh, yeah. Carlos Correa is still not signed. Freddie like, Freeman's still like, not signed. I'm having a hard time I shouldn't say a hard time because the core of the Dodgers is together, with the exception of Kershaw. Yeah. He looks great, by the way, at the Super Bowl. He looks great. Yeah, yeah he did. <laughs> he looked healthy. Yeah. And we don't know if he's going to be back with us. And the front office doesn't know if he's going to be back with us. And they need to be making decisions about what to do on our rotation if he doesn't come back. And they can't address any of this during this time because they aren't supposed to be talking to the players. So not only is the, the possibility of us losing games and losing spring training, we're still behind the eight ball in terms of pure roster construction. What is fantasy baseball going to do right oh, now? Oh, don't get me started. I've got I've read the same league for like 25 years. I don't even have to tell everybody. <laughs> The one thing that baseball is supposed to do, baseball can screw up so many things. Baseball can mess up this. It can not be the game that I loved, but I fell in love with it at 13, the way that everyone always says. But it's got to happen. It's the one thing that baseball does. People that don't love baseball as much as me are always like, oh, there's so many games. Totally agree. That's awesome. I love sports. That's right. going to love it when there are Let's games. Let's just keep going. Yeah, like, I love I, a pitcher's duel. Yeah, I don't like, need a seven to eight game yeah, or just, something like oh, that. And you know what? If we lose, hey, we play tomorrow. That's so great. That's the love of baseball for <laughs> For me to have baseball games 
not happen for over, I'm sorry, stupid shit. They're not that far away from one another is obviously I find it a little frustrating. Well, hopefully they get this stuff together so that you can keep running your fantasy baseball league. Yeah, that's the one, one, one most important thing. Please, players, give up millions so I can get my fantasy baseball league back going. <laughs> okay, Will, it's time for This Week in Sports History, where we break down an event from the past through the lens of 2022. Quick jump shot, short, Jeremy Lin, the rebound. Give him those jump shots. Just don't let him put it down on the floor. Lynn likes the open floor. Spinning. Puts it up and packs oh, it in. Yes. Sensational play for Jeremy Lynn. And, and he's the Garden Brown on its feet again. Mike, he's really enjoying it. You can see the smile on his face. That was the sound of Lynn's sanity, where Jeremy Lynn torched the Los Angeles Lakers for 38 points, outdoing Kobe and officially setting the New York basketball world on fire. Ten years ago this week, the Knicks signed the unheralded point guard to be a backup. But after sending Lynn to the G League and almost cutting him, coach Mike D'Antoni decided to play Lynn in the beginning of February when the Knicks were, you know, struggling badly. Out of nowhere, Lynn transformed into a transcendent force, leading the team on a seven-game winning streak and eventually helping them to a playoff berth. As the first American of Chinese or Taiwanese descent in the NBA, Lin quickly became an international sensation and one of the most popular players New York has ever had. Now, sadly, Lin's sending ended almost as quickly as it began. At the end of March, Lin hurt his knee and had surgery, missing the rest of the year. Then, Houston signed into a huge free agent contract in 2012. And although Lin went on to play another seven seasons for six different teams, he never experienced close to the success he had with the Knicks for those two short months. Will, looking back on Jeremy Lin's time with the Knicks, does it still resonate because he had to fight against racism and stereotyping to find a place in the NBA? Or does it just show how desperate Knicks fans are to find anything, anything, anyone to be joyous about? And I think I know what your answer is going to be, but let's just pretend as if I don't. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for for the little bit of kabuki on this podcast. I can't believe it's been 10 years, by the way. I've been watching sports for a long time. I've been covering sports for a long time. And that year I was working full-time in New York Magazine and I actually was covering the Knicks. But the thing about the Knicks is, A, they're almost always bad. But B, (laughs) and they're bad again. I don't know what the hell's going on with Tibbs right now. He's lost his mind. But I would say that... Whenever they're good, it's always because they brought in another star, right? That's what they're constantly always trying to do. The Knicks are always one star away, and most of them never pan out. They're always trying to find someone who's established himself somewhere else and bring him in. And inevitably, that player will come in, and everyone's be like, all right, show us. We're the Knicks. Show us. Are you a real New Yorker? And they inevitably end up caving because they're A, they're older, and B, there's all this pressure on them. The thing that was so great about Lynn, he was there. He came out of nowhere. The Knicks don't have underdogs by nature. They, they never have underdogs. Right. They're always trying to bring in stars. And so this guy, during a very tough period, remember that team was supposed to be good. That team was expected to be good that year. And they had really, really struggled. And D'Antoni couldn't get it figured out. And they were already talking about trying to trade for Carmelo. And that would mean that they would get rid of D'Antoni. And just out of desperation, I was actually at the game against Utah where they lost, but they brought in Lynn for the end of the game. And he was just incredible in the fourth quarter because the D'Antoni system clearly needed a point guard, something the Knicks did not have. Lynn was great, but it was really that the system needed a point guard and didn't have one. And Lynn was ready Mm -hmm. and better than people appreciated. The sound at the end of that Utah loss was like nothing I had really heard in the Garden the entire year. And then next game, Lynn's starting. And then everything explodes. I interviewed Spike Lee one time. He said the loudest he has ever ever. Spike Lee said the loudest he's ever heard the garden was during Jeremy Lin. Obviously, the fact that he was Asian American was a huge part of the story. But what Knicks fans wanted was an an underdog that was theirs because they never, ever get that. Lin was that. And I have to say, all told, he did kind of flame out a little bit. Like usually when you see this kind of meteoric rise, someone falls apart, right? We've literally seen this with Matt Harvey today in the trial that you've seen going on. He's talking about some of the pressures that he had and ultimately led to a drug problem. Jeremy Lin always seemed pretty normal (laughs) and handled it in about as sane a way as you could possibly handle it. So it didn't pan out. It was too beautiful to live, LZ. But it's one of the most fun things I've ever been a part of in sports. You know, one of the reasons why I love doing this for This Week in Sports History is because we always like to try to compare how it was covered versus Mm -hmm. today and how it will be covered today. And there's no way Lynn's sanity is even called Lynn's sanity in today's environment. There would have been some 
organization, some columnist, hell, it might even been me, <laughs> that would have said, hey, is this play on his name racist? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people would have been a lot more hesitant. Yeah. Certainly, we would not have seen some of the headlines, some of the stories written trying to play off his name yeah. or off of his ethnicity as much as we did 10 years ago, right? And I remember being at ESPN when one of our social media oh, or remember. headline writers was dismissed for trying to be clever with his ethnicity. And so I think today's environment is a lot more cognizant of these sort of stereotypical ways that we describe people of color, but also we're a little bit more sensitive in terms of not being willing to have fun playing off of people's names of color as well. So I think that both things are at play here that would have probably not even allowed Linsanity as a phrase to have built steam up the way that it did 10 years ago. The other thing too that I think is really interesting in this conversation is that you mentioned Carmelo. They were winning while Carmelo was out. Mm -hmm. And Carmelo comes back and wants to reassert himself as the face of the franchise and as the voice in that locker room when everything had been shifted over to this G League player. And I've never spoken to Melo about this directly. I certainly have read plenty of sources that have said there was definitely jealousy at play and he was very dismissive of Len when he got back. But I would argue that also... At the end of the day, winning that championship or trying to win, period, was Melo's responsibility. That's the reason why they gave up all of that. So much. All of that <laughs> collateral to get him. Yeah. They were winning with Amari Stoudemire at the heart of this ragtag team of shooters mm. and hustle players. Scott Novak. They were, <laughs> yeah. they were winning. Steve Novak, sorry. Steve Novak. Right, Steve Novak, yeah. uh, Chandler, Wilson Chandler, mm -hmm. or Chandler Wilson. Wilson Chandler, was. Wilson Chandler. Gallinari, mm -hmm. they had players that could shoot and they were young and they were feeding off of Amari Stoudemire and they were surprising people. And then Len shows up and they start winning. And then Melo shows up and it's like, oh, no, you're supposed to win with me. Yeah, I think you're right. I tend to be a defender of Carmelo in New York. I think he gets a lot of crap for it, but I don't think he took the right angle on that. I think he came in and be like, okay, uh, I'm back. And I, I think fans remember that. Carmelo's a great Nick. He'll be in the Hall of Fame as a Nick, and I think that he deserves it. The thing that people worried about Carmelo was that he didn't really want to win as much as he wanted to score or be famous or to be the center of everything. And right. that didn't help. That, I don't think that Jeremy Lin was going to lead them to a championship and then no. Carmelo came and ruined it. But it does <laughs> feel like a situation where Carmelo's going to be like, okay, how will you make this work? And it didn't feel that way. It felt like Carmelo came in and said, okay, it's my time now. Right. And honestly, if he had taken a different approach, Len might have retired a Nick. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It didn't have to be yeah. that way. But for whatever reasons, Melo didn't necessarily jelloed with him. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. <laughs> that was my dad joke. Was, Thank you very that's much. That's good. And that momentum was lost. And oh, by the way, the winning for the Knicks was lost as well. That kind of went out the window. Yep. The other thing I think that's fascinating about the Linsanity aspect of it is that he's not the first Asian athlete to have attention in the NBA. But what was unique about him was the position in which he was playing. Right. He was a perimeter-oriented player. And so instead of he being like Yao, this giant that's right. kind of like, well, of course he's going to be a star, right. even though he wasn't a regular person's height by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> right. he, was still super tall. he still <laughs> felt like right. a regular person. And he was a good looking guy. And he had pizzazz to his game too, in a way that and I he had a little pizzazz people. to his game, yeah. exactly. And there was a little bit of swagger yeah. to him. It was easy to plug into what he was selling. And that also is a part of how the marketing and the push behind him. I mean, what, back-to-back -back Sports Illustrated yeah. covers? Yeah. I mean, no one gets that. He was in the cover of GQ. It was a horribly written cover story. I don't remember who wrote it. It was me. It was a terrible <laughs> cover story for him for GQ. But he was everywhere. I mean, it was, it was unprecedented. And I remember my editors at GQ being like, oh, we are going to make so much money on this cover. <laughs> they really just thought it was going to be the best-selling cover to happen. It's Sandy ended up happening right after that. So they did not yes. get the newsstand sales that they wanted. But, uh, but yeah. It, but, it, it, it is sad. However, mm. I will say that the one thing that Lynn Sanity did help the NBA with 
is its messaging in terms of that this sport was truly for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that if you had game, you'll find a home in this league. And I think that it took their rhetoric from being just that empty rhetoric to there's real life proof now. This Asian American kid rose up through the G League and was a star in the biggest city in the country. And even though it didn't last long, it was inspirational. And I know tons of Asian American rec players as well as collegiate players who saw Lens Sanity and were inspired by it. And I think that's really important because so often when we talk about diversity, we boil it down to black and white. And every now and then we sprinkle in a little Latino, depending (laughs) upon what month it is, or somebody's saying something racist about the border. But diversity is beyond just black and white. And Lynn Sanity reminded everyone of that, particularly when it came to sports. And I can't stress enough how important it was that he was a perimeter player doing this and not just a giant big man who felt he was untouchable, but rather someone who felt they were like them. Extremely well put. Yeah, blew the roof <laughs> off the place. I will never forget Spike Lee saying that. It was never louder. I think he even said, I'm Spike Lee. I know how loud right. it gets. <laughs> and, and it was that loud. Oh, it was crazy, man. Yeah. I was in New York a lot then. I had moved away, but I was in New York all the time for work. Yeah. I want to say I went to seven or eight games yeah. with him. And I was like, oh, y'all weren't doing this when I was here. Yeah, <laughs> so it, was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty wild. Okay, LZ, let's move on to our listener questions. No offense to Marshall, but we have Megan back today. Yay! So I'm very delighted to have Megan back. So Megan, do we have any questions on this one? Uh, or uh, or no? Oh, no, sorry. We're out of time. Sorry, Megan. No, just oh. kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, Megan, what, what questions have we got? Yeah, we've got time for two questions today. First is from our uh, frequent viewer, Roz116. Mm-hmm. Question for LZ, but I'd like both your takes. He wants to know, LZ, would you still trade Debo Samuel for Cup straight up like you may or may not have said a couple weeks ago? I don't know. Yeah. 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 I, I, I would. Yeah. I mean, Cooper Cup is great, but like, I, 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 mean, I do think the Rams win that game more quickly <laughs> if, if, if they've got Debo. I think that I, I would agree with that as well. Well, you saw Cup's pass to Matt Stafford. That shit went straight out of bounds. <laughs> I forgot about that. That was all truly horrible yeah. pass. Debo nailed his pass, did he not? <laughs> oh, my God. I forgot about that pass. Good thing the Rams won. That pass would have hung on for a while. I forgot about that pass. All right. Do we have another, Megan? Yes, we do. Awesome. Another frequent viewer, Megabucks11. Mm-hmm. Do you think Katie regrets teaming up with Kyrie and Harden? He traded Steph Curry, Clay, and Dre for this. <laughs> Did he team up with him, Will? The <laughs> yeah, already played like 16 games. 16 games. But I mean, that was the idea, though. The idea of him choosing Brooklyn. And listen, Harden wasn't there yet, but Irving was. Irving was right. part of the package thing. This comes back to my general idea. If Irving gets vaccinated, I really think a lot of this gets avoided. I really think you've got to blame KD for not knowing that a global pandemic was coming. <laughs> I have to say, though, if you'd have gone to me and said, hey, there's going to be a big global pandemic, but there's going to be one superstar who's chaotic enough and weird and strange enough to not take the vaccine, I'd be like, oh, Kyrie. <laughs> That's only going to be Kyrie. <laughs> and it was. And listen, Kyrie's interesting in a lot of ways, a lot of good ways. I mean, listen, that made so much sense. That was the big thing. I interviewed him for a New York Magazine story right before the pandemic hit. The Knicks obviously really wanted him. And he said he went to the Nets, A, because he liked the organization. He's like, listen, I know the Nets have a lot to build. I know the Nets don't have the fan base of the Knicks. That's what I'm here trying to do. That's why I've got Kyrie Irving. Who wouldn't want to root for a team with me and Kyrie Irving? We're building something great here. And then they bring Harden and they just get 16 games together. I don't think he could have possibly predicted the way this was going to go down. It made a lot of sense for him to do it. And frankly, if he had stayed with Golden State, I don't know how that situation would have played out either, right? Well, I mean, assuming he would have been healthy, losing Clay would have maybe not have derailed the franchise. Yeah. If Clay goes down, but KD is still there balling out, maybe they're still champions. Who knows? I think that, you know, if anything he regrets, and I'm not saying this based upon any reporting whatsoever, this is just the outside looking in, is that... He wasn't just in a winning situation, but he was in Oakland. (laughs) And Oakland is one of those iconic black cities that once you really become a part of the fabric of that city, 
it's just going to fuck with you, man, for the rest of your <laughs> life, man. Oakland's just one of those places, man. I mean, you see how they love Dane. You see yeah, how they love yeah. Marshawn Lynch. It's just one of those cities, man, that whether you win or not, if you rep in the city, the city is going to embrace you and love you forever. Brooklyn, you know, the Brooklyn Not Nets, like that. <laughs> Yeah, it's not yeah. like that. Yeah, it, like Park Slope is not known for its <laughs> eternal embrace. And that's not to say that Brooklyn doesn't love sports. Of yeah. course it does. Right. I mean, Jackie Robinson, hello. Right. Brooklyn is down, but Brooklyn it has a different vibe yes. to it with its relationship with athletes because so much of it is funneled through what actually happens in Manhattan yep. and what's actually happening with the Stankies. And not necessarily what's happening with the second basketball team that was in a parking lot in New Jersey yes. and then showed up in Brooklyn. Yes. And that's not to say that people living in Brooklyn aren't going to fuck with KD. This is just a different vibe, yeah. man. Yeah. It's just a whole different feel. So maybe he misses out on being able to be embraced by a community like that in that sort of way. But again, who could have predicted the quarantine? Mm. I agree with you. If there was going to be one superstar playing the NBA, Kyrie probably would have been my choice too. But at the same time, you didn't know what the protocols were going to be. Right. You didn't know what the municipalities were going to say or the state was going to say or the federal government was going to say about it. So Kyrie not taking a vaccination, well, there's tons of Americans who haven't taken other vaccinations like chickenpox and et cetera, and they're still able to work in everyday environments. We didn't know what the cities were going to say. No, I mean, I mean, there's NBA players that never got vaccinated. They're still able to play uh, all the time. It's just where Kyrie happens to play. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So hopefully KD will be able to get another chip. I hope he does, man, because that dude... He's so the truth. Oh, he's, I mean, you know, I clown him for the burner account and stuff like that. <laughs> right, right. But if you just really ask me who I have loved watching over the last 10 years of the league, Katie's right up there, man, with Steph and Braun and Dame, Kobe, of course. He's one of them dudes, dudes. And you just want to see him get one of those chips that doesn't come with one of those pseudo asterisks that people want to slap on the chips that he won with Golden State. Well, if he gets one now, there will definitely not be an asterisk. I don't think there's any question <laughs> about that. Okay, thanks for your questions. Send us again next week, and hopefully maybe KD will send one from his burner account. And that's our show for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we will be live on Twitch on Tuesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time at twitch.tv slash the recount, twitch.tv slash the recount for a breakdown of the biggest stories in sports. So join us then. The Long Game is produced by Pierre Bienname, Megan Burney, Roz Guevara, and Marshall Eisen. Music is by Gloria Tells. Sound design is by David Wilson. We'll be back with another podcast next Wednesday when I'm sure there's still no baseball that's going to be happening.